We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Well, it's the end of another year, and albeit one that was rather annoying, and I think that's rather a polite way to put it. So tonight we'll be discussing 2020 and the stories my two guests saw as being the most important here in Taiwan for the year that was. And we'll jump straight in with, well, we'd better start at the beginning, that being the coronavirus outbreak that became a pandemic. Now, lots of issues, opinions and news there. But Brian, what particular aspect or story caught your eye vis-à-vis the coronavirus and Taiwan? That's right. And so uh, the story that caught my eye was dating from August, when the Zhanghua County government started to dispute uh, that the, the claims by the Ministry of Health and Welfare and the CECC, the uh, Center, Central Epidemic Control Center, regarding uh, just the, the rate, infection rate in Taiwan. And so there was calls for local testing in order to see how many people were actually infected. Um, this was due to growing skepticism regarding that there had not been a tra- case of uh, domestic transmission of COVID-19 since April. And this story, I think it's interesting because it, it points to how uh, uh, the Pam Blue Camp was targeting the Tsai administration around the COVID-19 issue. The Tsai administration has benefited this year from a high approval rating because of public approval of its handling of the coronavirus. However, this is a case in which a local government was attempting to go in- against the central government. In this case, Zhanghua's county commissioner, Wang, Wang, Wang Huimei. And so I think uh, this is interesting because this is a pattern we will see more in the future. As the pandemic goes on, we will see more challenges to the narrative of the central government, uh, challenges to the authority of the CECC under the Tsai administration by the KMT, by opposition parties such as the MPP or the TPP. Um, at the same time, particularly because of the the recent case of the New Zealand pilot, uh, who did actually have another case, create another case of domestic transmission, this is going to lead to more uh, fears that there are undetected transmission chains of COVID-19. And I think this will revive the, the call for a mass testing uh, a regime to be enacted in Taiwan. Currently, the CECC has stated there's no need for mass testing because of the number of false positives this would generate. The CEC stated that this would generate around 12,000, and that's more than the medical system can currently cope with. And so... As we see, as we saw recently, another case of domestic transmission. As we saw with cases such as the Russian, uh, uh, the Moscow State, the, ba- the ballet dancers that came to Taiwan and then later tested positive for COVID nineteen after the end of their quarantine period. I think there'll be a renewed push to call for mass testing, and I can see this debate going on in the next year uh, as the pandemic continues, as we continue to have new measures rolled out to adopt to a changing situation. And Ross, do you see mass testing coming up? Certainly possible. I, I can't imagine that that uh, the number of false positives would be a, a good justification not to do it if there's a, a, you know, a scientific or medical reason why uh, we should be doing that. And frankly, it shouldn't take very long either given uh, you know, Taiwan's national health insurance system, how accessible uh, hospitals or doctor's offices are. And frankly, uh, it would be a good, it would be be a good test run for the vaccine rollout as well, right? So if if we were told we all needed to go within a on a certain day or a certain period of time to uh, visit a doctor's office to to get the test, uh, it would be be a good way to start tracking or, or you know for purposes of arranging the vaccine, contacting people, arranging times. Uh, which doctor or hospital you're supposed to go to for your test could be the place you go to for the vaccine. So, uh, you know, it almost comes across, uh, you know, call the conspiracy theorists, you know, well, what are they hiding? You know, might as well well do it. I, I was kind of surprised at the way the central government 
really went on the uh, the legal and administrative and political attack against uh, the Nanto County government simply because they wanted to do a mass testing and you know, and you want know, threatening to find them and investigate them. Uh, you know, what's the big deal? They just wanted to do do mass testing. So, uh, you know, Brian, you you could be right, Gavin. You know, it might happen uh, within the coming months. Uh, uh, I just don't see why. Well, why not? As, as long as there's a medical reason, you know, the, the authorities, uh, the experts think we really need this information. It'll be helpful to know. Uh, you know we've been fortunate. And we should say in this this part of the show, right? We've been fortunate um, that, that putting Taiwan in a bubble, pretty much from the beginning of of the year, helped keep the number of cases uh, below uh, most countries um, <laughs> by by a large large number. So we're very fortunate in that regard. But I think the examples that that Brian cited, you know, these recent examples, whether it's the the Russian ballerinas, uh, the New Zealand pilot, uh, I, I was talking with a doctor yesterday from a major hospital in, in Taipei. Come on, nobody thinks that there weren't more cases in Taiwan than, than what's been reported. No, they could have been uh, asymptomatic or light symptoms, misdiagnosed as having uh, a, a flu, uh, or just that they had a mild case of COVID-19, didn't even go to the go to get tested. But uh, you know, the likelihood that there's only been 800, less than 800 cases in Taiwan in 2020, I think that's pretty low as well. And so, Ross, anyway, staying with you, what caught your eye about the coronavirus vis-a-vis a story, an opinion, or a any issue? Uh, I I'll identify some issues. I think a, a bit, a bit of the inconsistency and, and, and changes in, in the the rules that that govern our, our day to day life. So again, keeping in mind that we, we have been very fortunate here to, in Taiwan to have such a small number of cases. But you know, I'll, I'll just give you, a, you know, another example. I, I visited two universities this week. One, you had a do a, a contact tracing, fill in the form, swipe your car, your ID card. Uh, at the door, at the gate. Uh, so they had these kinds of entry restrictions or controls. Uh, I went to another university, no controls at all. Uh, you could just walk, anyone could just walk in. Uh, so there, this inconsistency, I, I just this week, right, there's Christmas events at, at some shopping malls or New Taipei City government had a, a very large outdoor event in the plaza in front of the New Taipei City government office buildings. Uh, there's New Year, the typical kind of New Year's Eve countdown outdoor events as well. Uh, and then you go to you might go to some restaurant or, or some other venue, and, and again they're you know, they're asking you to fill out forms and uh, put keep a mask on as much as possible. I go to the gym, you got to wear a mask when you walk in. But you don't have to wear a mask when you're exercising, you know. So, I think you use the the correct word. It's, it's issues. You know, we still seem to have some issues with consistency or logic. And to kind of bring this to a close, if if it's safe to go to University A or enter without doing a contact tracing form or wearing a mask, then why is University B insisting on it? It's one or the other. Either the situation. Is is sufficiently safe that this is unnecessary, or it's uh, kind of uh, uh, dangerous, for lack of a better word, where these kinds of measures are necessary. But it it shouldn't be both. There should be some some consistency. So consistency, Brian. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, when, for example, 
A lot of what you actually see is security theater. For a long time, while there were actually temperature checks at the subways, for example, and you were required to take wear masks and so forth, you would very rarely see anyone get stopped regarding that. And so there's someone sitting there uh, just having to sit in front and just check the temperature monitors, but they're not actually doing things. When you go home, for example, at, let's say, 11 p.m., when it's quite late, there's actually nobody there. And then there are different uh, enforcement of mask wearing. There's different enforcement of actually uh, writing down your name and contact information when you go into a venue. Um, I think what's particularly interesting is that the CECC, through the course of the pandemic, has emphasize the need for centralized coordination. It has reacted quite strongly against local governments that have proposed different policies than was adapted nationally uh, to fight off COVID-19, and has also reacted against different, uh, reacted against other sources of information apart from itself. Wanting to centralize the amount of data available on COVID-19, what's the discourse that's publicly discussed is supposed to flow from the CCC releases and so forth. Um, but then actually one does see significant variation from place to place to place. And I think that's uh, that's that's part of just, uh, part of it is just as the pandemic goes on, people will take it less seriously and, and will become more lax on on uh, these kind of measures, and that just will have a different rate with different establishments. But I think that also is, is true with uh, with just uh, the fact that even a lot of public institutions are not just, uh, they have different uh, just measure, uh, rules and regulations, and, and actually just, uh, it's not as cohesive as people think it is sometimes. Anyway, let's move on from the coronavirus, thankfully, and talk about domestic politics. And while it may have been overshadowed, of course, there was an election here, Brian, this year. Is that your top political story of the year, or did you forget? Probably like um, so many others. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was at the beginning of the year, so I thought I thought uh, that is the that is the most evidently important story. But I think um, what I want to talk about was after the election, particularly with the uh, effort by the KMT to really adapt to uh, a defeat within the 2020 elections, with the election, for example, of uh, Johnny Chang as as chair. So after the defeat of Hungary, who lead into this kind of uh, ROC nationalism, this kind of traditional uh, 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 kind of par- party identity, uh, which was actually different from his 2018 mayoral run, in which he was much more able to appeal to young people and and came off as very unorthodox, they came to again as with has occurred many times in the past few years after particularly after political defeat. Question whether it needed to kind of turn over a new page and, and appeal to young people and come off as less pro-China, and so that led to the election of Johnny Chang, a man in his 40s, as a, a comparatively young chair. And so he came in proposing to make some changes, uh, including jettisoning the 1992 consensus. But then these efforts gradually just ran out of steam. Uh, for example, in the KMT's party congress just a few months ago, uh, the 1992 consensus was adopted as a core principle of the party. The ROC, preserving the institution of the ROC, was adopted as a, a, the party's core value. And so then you also see the attempt to outreach to people on social media. This has not been successful. Um, for example, Chang touted creating a digital chapter, quote unquote, for the party, which was actually just a mobile app. And he made a strange ad where he dressed as Zhuge Liang, the uh, Three Kingdoms character, and and uh, proposed, you know, just like it's like CGI and, and things like that. Um, the appeals to young people have been kind of odd and, and scattershot. Uh, and then when one saw, for example, the attempted occupation of the legislative run by KMT legislators in June to protest uh, Chen Zhu's nomination as the head of the control run, uh, this marked that Chang had sort of lost control of the party caucus in that sense, that he was actually unable to uh, change the kind of tactics that they were adopting and in which the KMT was becoming more, uh, how do I say, aggressive or belligerent in its rhetoric towards the DPP. Chang had promised to rise above that and push towards civility, push towards something new to win new respectability for the party. And then as one sees the decline of Chang's influence, one actually sees former President Ma Yingzhou's influence in the party growing. Uh, Ma 
was in he after the Sun Farmer in 2014, he took steps to cultivate younger politicians in the party, realizing that there was a major issue in the party if it was losing the uh, support of young people, if it wasn't running a young politician. Chang was elected as a younger politician, but Ma also was quite good in actually building ties with younger KMT promising uh, candidates, some of which are now in office. And so I think that his, uh, his position in the party has become kind of consolidated a bit more, and he is trying to push for his legacy issues, such as the 1990 consensus. And so once again, the KMT is stuck, stuck between the push for traditionalism, a push for reform, and now it's erring towards traditionalism once again, and one to see more extreme rhetoric from the KMT against the TPP on issues such as ractopamine pork and, and so forth. And one will see this as a tendency growing as I think uh, time goes on. Uh, Chang was only elected uh, as a as a by-election. He won't have a full term. But I think this is very telling about the domestic politics in Taiwan uh, for the Pan Blue Camp, for the opposition after 2020 elections. And Ross, what was your top political story domestically of the year? Well, it is politics and, and the election, and I want to talk about... Oh, you uh, remembered it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember it vaguely, uh, but I, I want to talk about something similar to Brian, but from a different perspective. I mean, Brian, uh, going on and on about the Kuomintang, the KMT, the party that... Uh, if I may say, uh, got its butt kicked in this election, right? Both in the presidential election as well as the legislative UN election. I mean, completely decimated for a number of reasons: bad candidate for president, bad candidates for legislative UN, bad strategy, bad advertising. Uh, Brian alluded to that with with what they've been doing more recently, as far as uh, the failed youth outreach and social media. But the point I wanted to make is. We seem to have moved into a culture of of sore winners, and, and I'm not sure that's healthy going forward either. Brian, your your focus on the party that lost it, it nearly shocks me. I, I mean, you, you you went on for for many minutes about the woes of of the KMT. Uh, shouldn't we be focusing on on you know the the people who are in office and and governing and and the things they do well? Uh, COVID nineteen being response being one of them. Um, you know, the other issues of day-to-day governance. But if, if uh, the people in the presidential office or the DPP uh, headquarters or legislative UN, commentators like Brian, are, are, are going to focus so much on, on the Gomindag, uh, again, as I said, there, there's this risk of a, you know, a sore winner culture developing. Uh, and I, I just don't think that's healthy. Uh, if, if the Gomindang is going to continue to harm itself politically, make poor decisions. Yeah, I don't think they need anyone's help. <laughs> they don't need the DPP or, or the president or the premier uh, legislators to, to constantly be f- talking about how awful the Guomindang is. They're, they're going to be awful on their own. I, I'd prefer you know, we, we, we move forward. You know, I'd, I'd you know, even be more positive and uh, talk about uh, you know, good policymaking. Um, uh, there's a risk and uh, I think the DPP uh, does this uh, to their disadvantage, which is they're constantly in election mode. So, yeah, talking about how awful the Gomindang is might be good for uh, getting elected. But th- this is not an election year. And 2021 is not an election year. There- there's local elections at the end of 2022. And then it will be a short 13, 14 months until the next presidential and legislative elections after that. Uh, but I, I wish the people who, who were elected uh, and democratically elected, and as I said, they, they were they're enormously popular with the voters. That's why the, the president and the DPP legislators won by such a large margin. 
Focus on governing. You don't have to be sore winners and focus on the losers. Okay, you mentioned policy. Pick a policy, Ross, not anything to do with the coronavirus that really impressed you this year. Uh, well, I, I'd like to say the the, the coupons, <laughs> but that is linked, that is linked to to the virus uh, for for good or bad. Uh, but uh, you know, we'll talk about the economy as as well. Uh, but uh, the the rollout of, of of the coupons was pretty smooth. Uh, I guess they had a lot of experience after trying to roll out the the masks and, and some twists and turns with with the mask. The mask system, uh, but it's an interesting question, Gavin, because we're so focused on China issues, and we'll talk about those later as well. And we're focused on COVID nineteen. I wonder if you went out on the street, Gavin, and asked people to name something in public policy other than COVID nineteen or other than China, you know, whether the the public could name anything. Of course, Brian, policy, oh, this is not last year. We had gay marriage last year, but I mean this year for policy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing because the DPP successes have primarily been regarding COVID-19. And so actually uh, the DPP has actually kind of just benefited from that and they've just coasted on that primarily and allows them to kind of evade other issues sometimes, uh, larger structural issues just uh, that have long existed. And so you can just use your success from COVID-19 to kind of avoid that. And you can take some political gambles. I mean, uh, for example, the ractopamine pork issue, that that is always provocative of the Taiwanese public. And so when you lift the limit on uh, ractopamine pork imports from the U.S., you definitely know you have blow, will get blowback. But the DPP decided to actually gamble the political capital it had gained from COVID-19 on that issue, actually. Um, also, Tsai did actually manage to get the DPP to mostly agree to that. Um, you know, there's some resistors in the vote just uh, like just yesterday, basically. Um, and so just the fact that, that she actually was able to do that just kind of surprises me. Because in the past, the DPP was opposed to Rakhtamayin Pork. Uh, the KMT and the DPP have changed stances on the issue between when they were in opposition and in power, which I find hypocritical. But um, just then, then Tsai was actually able to get the DPP caucus to mostly fall in line. Whereas she was able to avoid them becoming skittish about the issue and breaking off for their own political ends, for their own political careers. Um, and regarding that, then I think that, that also points maybe uh, Ross Commons point to the kind of impasse facing the DPP that just with Tsai in her second term, they don't really have a clear uh, mandate as to who will be the next rising star, who will be the next political leader going forward. And so they, you know, the KMT is doing disastrously, but at the same time, one sees tremendous popularity of KMT politicians such as Hoyoi, who has managed to keep out of this kind of partisan fray, just himself from the rest of the party, but is gaining in popularity. And so, I mean, just proposed, for example, president candidates have included Zhou Wenzhan, the Taoran mayor, but he does not seem to be politically charismatic or be able to win over the Taiwanese public in, in a way that Tsai was, despite... Um, not being also the most, you know, outgoing, let's say, politician. And so I think that's that's the, that's the thing that's facing the DPP. They've kind of managed to, to go so far on COVID-19, but now what? That's that's the question. Now what? And now what? What indeed? Because we'll talk about foreign relations now. And of course, that includes cross-strait issues, Ross. Foreign relations, Somaliland. <laughs> yeah, Taiwan established representative offices with the unrecognized autonomous region of Somaliland. I mean, unrecognized by, uh, if I recall correctly, any country in the world, although uh, they do have this kind of informal uh, diplomatic relations like Taiwan typically maintains with other countries. Uh, so it, it it's something to watch whether Taiwan's going to make a habit of uh, having uh, representative offices with unrecognized territories around the world. There, there's a, a large number of pros and cons on that. But yeah, as far as China goes, uh, 
you know, it's easy to say that the, the, the big issue but was kind of the, the continued you know, uh, you know, lack of cross-strait communication, uh, the nastiness of China. Uh, I'm concerned about the increased military activity and how Taiwan's going to respond to that going forward, especially with a new U.S. administration coming in. You know, as we often talk about, Gavin, uh, the flights, you know, the the putting of, of, of uh, aircraft in the air from China, China coming closer and closer to Taiwan, the response that's needed from the Taiwan side, same thing uh, on the water. Uh, it's it's an enormous amount of uh, resources that this takes. It, you know, it's uh, pressure on on the personnel, um, the you know, the people who are on the boats or in the aircraft, the maintenance people. Uh, pressure on um, you know spare parts, the, all the machinery. Uh, you know, it costs money as well. Uh, the, the the Ministry of National Defense and the government they're spending a lot of money on buying new weapons. They're going to have to spend a lot on maintenance and salary, and the budget's going up, uh, which is good. And uh, experts have called for dramatic increases in defense spending for a long time, and it's good to see. But it's probably still not enough. Uh, and and the continued pressure that China's putting on militarily, I, I think that's really the biggest issue in cross-strait relations. And Brian, foreign affairs or cross-strait relations for you? Yeah, it was also cross-strait relations. And it was actually the same story. I think that is a major issue that China has increased its uh, military drilling around Taiwan, that it's uh, sending planes into the airspace around Taiwan. Uh, for example, just crossing the median line of the Taiwan Strait, that was not so common in the past. And starting from February onward, um, they, first, they did that for the first time in a year. And then this has happened um, like around 50 times this year. The last time this kind of thing happened really with, with this uh, frequency was, was 20 years ago in 1999 during the uh, transition of political power to Trans-Arabian. And so then uh, one sees then other actions such as China uh, launching planes at night, which is the first time that's happened. That happened in March. And then in response to incidents such as the visit of uh, Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services from the U.S. in August, or uh, Keith Kroc, the Undersecretary of State in September, one also sees responses from China China by, by sending planes over. And one sees now larger groups of planes. One sees uh, this this kind of incursion occurring on a near-daily basis sometimes. And it's uh, become frequent enough that I think this is not just only aimed at intimidating Taiwan. This is also aimed at providing training for Chinese military personnel to allow them experience of, of actually having their planes out there in a situation in which you're not going to likely have live fire, but you do have a hostile force that will engage with you or, or kind of fly near you and try to pressure you and that kind of thing. Um, and I think that is just a way to gather data uh, about Taiwan. Just, you know, what are the pressure points for Taiwan's military? How does it respond? Uh, watching how it responds. And, you know, what what expends budget? Um, for example, there's the issue of uh, fuel expenses that just for Taiwan now, there is so much more money being spent sending out these planes. This is not cheap. And so then Taiwan is, is needing to spend more money on defense. Also, just issues regarding uh, aircraft equipment being put under stress because of that. And then whenever something such as a uh, F-16 goes missing or whatever, then China can play this up for its own uh, for its own uh, kind of purposes, just to make Taiwan look weak. And I think another function, actually, the military drilling serves is that... Um, because this is this does not happen. The last time this happened was under basically when Chen Trapian was coming to power. They're trying to make cross-strait relations seem like Tsai has worsened it. They're trying to paint Tsai as her actions having led to this in order, I think, to uh, play on people within the American establishment that view Taiwan suspicion and would view the Tsai as having upset China in this way. And this would be a way to uh, cut off growing U.S. support for 
Taiwan by painting Tsai as, as having provoked this and that the U.S. shouldn't be backing her because she will just have moves that will provoke China unnecessarily and lead to further escalation within the region. Well, they both agreed there, but we have to take a short break now, but we will be back after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And we'll jump straight in on our return with the most important society or social-related story, Ross. Uh, I'll go with the, the judges. Uh, since earlier we mentioned marriage equality, I'll, I'll go with the, the uh, decriminalization of adultery. So all the adulterers out there could, could rest, rest assured they might not face criminal charges. Can you expound on this? Uh, well, I'm not married, so uh, I, I, I was not in, in, at risk of being uh, you know, charged with a crime of adultery, although I know quite a few people who would have been had they been caught. And talking about judges, of course, we had the citizen judges this year. That, that remains to be seen what the actual rollout is going to be. I, I think it's fair to say it fell flat with the public. It's just such a peculiar system, some kind of compromise of doing uh, you know, a, a proper jury system. Uh, they didn't want to make, the powers that be didn't want to make that leap, so they came up with the, the unnecessarily complex, confusing, and useless solution. Uh, well, again, people don't really understand it. The willingness of the public to participate in this system remains to be seen. How defend, I think yeah, after it's implemented, what the impact will be on, on um, people who are in court, on litigants, uh, defendants, remains to be seen as well. Um, I'm, frankly, I'm just not optimistic that this is a good idea. So a couple of legal points there from Ross, the lawyer. Brian, I mean, what do you make of the adultery law and what did you make of the citizen judges? Yeah, that's right. I think it's interesting because there's a, a veritable cottage industry of, uh, you know, for example, private detective agencies that investigate adultery and, and uh, it's it's a large industry. Um, you have cases in which people are being threatened by uh, this, basically, private detectives are h- hired um, in order to investigate adultery, for example. And so this is, I think, a positive step. Um, it's it's uh, also the way adultery cases are applied usually disproportionately falls on women, although historically women's groups actually pushed for punishments for adultery in the belief that this would protect women. Um, and so I think this is a positive step. Um, what's also interesting is that there are a host of related issues regarding sexual freedoms. Uh, for example, there are limits on transnational gay marriages in Taiwan still that you have to be, the two people that want to get married have to be from countries that have both legalized gay marriage for that to happen. And so now there's a draft to, put, to actually lift these uh, limits, although it's still with that, one of the parties still has to be Taiwanese. It can't be two people that are not Taiwanese from countries that have both not legalized gay marriage, uh, for example, getting married in Taiwan. And then there is also that uh, abortions still require the consent of the woman's partner. Um, this is another thing that's quite dated. I think it's, it's just uh, on the books because of the fact that Historically, uh, there's the attempt to not have abortions without the permission of the husband, um, the treating women as, as the property of the man. And so there's now also a bill to kind of change this. And so I think this points to a lot of these issues in which Taiwan legalized gay marriage last year, but there's still a host of similar issues to be addressed. And what was your favorite topic of society or social this year, Brian? Yeah, I was going to raise the CITV, uh, CTITV ruling uh, in which that the broadcast license of CTITV was, was removed, Zhongtian. Um, and this is interesting because of the fact that the Times Nation has accused CTITV of uh, acting in a very partisan way. I mean, for example, the uh, National Communications Commission stated that 70% of airtime was devoted to Hangul in May of last year. 
uh, if I recall correctly. And then you also have, as a, as a want want group owned media outlet, you have reports by Financial Times that they're accepting two billion NT in funding from the Chinese government. Uh, that from uh, no, that's from the Apple Daily. Uh, the Financial Times reported that they were directly seeking approval of the Taiwan Affairs Office from China in order to run stories. Uh, and the, the Taiwan Affairs Office had a say in, in how these stories were placed and the angle they took. And so what's interesting is that this is uh, taking action against a Pan Blue media outlet, one accused of acting as a, a front for Chinese disinformation, basically. Uh, but if, if the time machine does not take issue on this, then one doesn't expect to take issue against basically any other case of Chinese disinformation in Taiwan, um, because it's such, a, it's such a big fish. It's so visible and it's out there. And so I think this has an, an implications for other cases in which the time machine is targeting um, Chinese disinformation. You know, now Zhongtian CTI, CTI TV has shifted to being an online platform, and they're claiming that the time machine's attempts to regulate, for example, online streaming platforms from China are aimed at targeting Zhongtian. Although this, this, this actually is an issue that goes back to before this ruling. And so I think this has a very significant uh, impact on, on, uh, on the media in Taiwan going forward. And of course, you know, CTI TV has attempted to defend itself by saying that the time machine is violating press freedoms. Of course, Ross Bryan put that in the society social section, but some might have put that in the political section. I referenced the <laughs> earlier segment of this show. Yes. You know, Brian, Brian, you're still, you know, you're doing the sore winner thing, oh. right? You're, you're, you want to speak at length about the the ills of, of Zhongtian uh, when the, the viewpoint of uh, Zhongtian, you know, their, their editorial bias, uh, whether it's the TV stations or, or the... Uh, the Zhongguo Shiba, the China Times newspaper, part of the same group. Uh, you know, it's not a secret. Their, their editorial biases, they support 92 consensus, uh, just like the Liberty Times or, or, or Min Shi, Formosa News, uh, lean towards Taiwan independence. I mean, if you don't like it, change the channel. Uh, yeah, so, uh, again, I, I just think like that this is, uh, it's, it's like campaign mode. We're in perpetual campaign mode. So uh, every day we're going to say, find something that, uh, the, the the shrinking pool, right? Uh, you know, the, the the DPP did so well in the election, but every day we're still saying how awful the Goldmingdang is or how awful Zhongtian is. It's like we're in perpetual campaign mode. Of course, Brian, talking about the CTIV story, there's been talk that maybe this could come back on them because maybe a next Guomingdang government could cease to take action against maybe a pro-independence channel. That's right, and that's uh, very possible. Particularly the uh, promising candidate would be Formosa Television, um, just because of the fact that is the most pangry network. And so this does actually open the door for retaliation um, if it is now viewed as a part of an issue regarding the NCC, the National Communications Commission. The KMT, if it does come to power, it will actually take action against Pan Green Outlets as well. And I, I, do, I think this is just something that uh, the Time Mission has, has taken a gamble on that then, just maybe taking a gamble that the KMT will not come to back to power and this will not come to back to haunt it in that way. And so, I mean, one option would have been just let Zhongtian keep going and just let them hang themselves with their own rope, more or less, and just uh, not actually take them off air, but just kind of paint them, I mean, just kind of point to where their their press coverage is so biased or so clearly evidences Chinese disformation efforts in Taiwan. Uh, but they chose not to do that. And that's, I think that's a, it's a, it's a gamble. Big gamble. Anyway, talking of gambling, business, Ross, what was the business or economics story that caught your eye this year or your wallet? Uh, well, there's not much in my wallet, I can assure you, Gavin. <laughs> uh, ICRT just doesn't pay me enough for, for, for coming on Taiwan this week. Uh, the, the positive economic growth and uh, the stock market performance are, are uh, you know, what I think of when I think of Taiwan's economy in 2020. 
but this does come with with some howevers. Uh, part of that is is a benefit of COVID nineteen. Buyers couldn't travel to other places to uh, you know, inspect factories or, or uh, look at the goods. Uh, they could still come to a lesser extent to Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, just the overall COVID-19 situation simply being better. So we didn't lose production days, whereas uh, places in China, they literally were shut down, lockdowns. Uh, so factories were, were literally closed. South Korea, Japan have experienced some of that as well. So Taiwan was was able to benefit from some rerouting of, of orders from, from uh, that might have gone to China or other countries. Uh, Taiwan's IT industry benefited tremendously uh, due to work from home. So people needed to buy more equipment, uh, newer computers, uh, faster computers uh, for their home offices, or they they were working so hard at home that they destroyed their existing equipment and needed to replace it or needed to upgrade to something comparable that they had in the office. So uh, IT expenditure, uh, anytime IT expenditure is positive, that's, that's good for Taiwan. And then there's some new... You know, uh, you know uh, uh, components or I should say devices from from various companies. Uh, again, a lot of those orders go to Taiwan companies as well. Uh, people in Taiwan couldn't travel overseas, so they spent money here. Uh, they went to restaurants and shopping malls here in Taiwan instead of uh, spending a, for example, a school summer holiday in in, in Japan or uh, Southeast Asia. So Taiwan benefited uh, from that kind of increase in, in domestic spending. But uh, we all hope that the global COVID-19 situation will improve. We're not uh, sitting here hoping that it stays bad just just so Taiwan's economy could benefit. And the GDP figures are really good. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that that's, uh, you know, frankly, the point I'm trying to make, that you know, we don't want Taiwan's GDP to be good simply because the world is suffering through the, the pandemic. You know, that, that would be kind of evil uh, that, that, would, that would suck that would be very very nasty ross so well, i mean just just to close out uh, the, the point is yeah great great economic uh data this year uh will it be sustainable uh probably not so we do have to prepare for what comes next and Brian, business or economics or your wallet? Yeah, I mean, similarly, I, I was going to say, just, uh, I mean, people are now t- touting Taiwan as, as one of the few economies in the world to grow. And uh, this was only by 2% because of the fact that other economies around the world contracted because of COVID-19 and Taiwan was relatively unaffected. So now Taiwan is getting all this positive press. I mean, this raises a lot of questions. I mean, people point to the return of manufacturing. I mean, there has been some. It's not this kind of grand return of manufacturing from China to Taiwan all of a sudden. First, it couldn't happen that fast. Second, uh, I just don't think that cost-wise it makes sense to return manufacturing to Taiwan. Some supply chains did, I think, just maintain stability. Um, and there's also, uh, I think Taiwan is really benefiting from positive press, just that the perception of Taiwan have, having mastered the secret of fighting COVID-19 does help actually raise its economic profile as a place for investment or or, or what have, whatever. Other industries, for example, such as the uh, are not able to operate in other parts of the world, but are currently able to operate in Taiwan. I think this particular sense benefit, for example, domestic entertainment. Uh, the film industry in Taiwan is still functional, whereas it is not in a lot of other places. And so I think Taiwanese film that is, is still being produced now, it is still getting tension. Uh, industry giants as Netflix have uh, investments in Taiwan, substantial um, you know, money being put here. So that, that helps with that. And that will help with soft power. But again, just what happens when COVID-19 ends? Uh, it's not like the economic trend has reversed uh, generally, regarding Taiwan's economy and the poor growth in, in past years, um, it's only better in comparison to the rest of the world. China's always still larger; it always will be larger, and so 
that will be there. Um, China has negative press because of COVID-19, but also then it did rebound faster than, than many Western countries did, uh, particularly the U.S. And so then, then I think um, the question is really now that there's more attention on Taiwan than in the past, but are there actually foundations to actually push for substantial changes? And so I think the bigger economic story then will actually just be next year and subsequent years, uh, how to capitalize on off of this positive press and make it actually more substantial rather than just looking good in comparison to everyone else. Of course, like the baseball. Of course, Taiwan baseball started, big thing all over the world. And now, of course, NBA has started, or Major League Baseball has started, rather. And, of course, is anyone paying attention to Taiwan baseball? Uh, This is a a good point. I think it touches on a lot of the different things we've been discussing today. And, and look, it's clear that 2020 was dominated by (laughs) COVID-19, not just in Taiwan, but but globally. Um, what, What is all this good news for Taiwan or the positive coverage, Brian just alluded to it in the economic context. What does it really mean for Taiwan going forward? Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of interviews you know, with Taiwan government officials. The digital minister Audrey Tong, she was uh, you know, interviewed a, an enormous number of times by uh, global media. So was the foreign minister uh, Joseph Wu, President Tsai as well. Uh, everyone says, oh, how nice. But let's be frank, okay? Uh, didn't help Taiwan get observer status or into the room at the World Health Organization back in May. And, and the international community did what it always does. They just made some statements saying, basically, we think, we hope it would be so nice if Taiwan could participate. Uh, now, the U.S., <clears throat> excuse me, under President Trump did say they're going to leave the WHO. Biden is probably going to reverse that. Uh, so you know, even for, for all the, the nice words about Taiwan, uh, it, it didn't it, it didn't help again in the WHO. Yeah, Taiwan has donated masks uh, to other countries. Uh, I, I again, practically, I don't know what that's going to mean long term. You know, some people might have a recollection that they got a mask from Taiwan in a, in a less developed country, or even in the U.S., where uh, certain places around the U.S. may have gotten a donation from Taiwan. But you know, there are other countries that were donating uh, as countries had surpluses at different points they may have been donating it uh, I think Taiwan is just going to get lost in the mix you know, I don't think people are going to remember a couple of years from now oh Taiwan that, that was the major donor and then when it comes to things like uh, lockdowns or uh, how to emerge from a lockdown you know Taiwan frankly and this doesn't sound very nice but it is the reality they have no experience to share because Taiwan didn't have a lockdown so as countries in, in Western Europe or, or the United areas of the United States figure out you know, how to go forward, whether it's schools or economy, you know, Taiwan doesn't really have much experience in that regard to share because the situation was so good here. So we don't have a lockdown experience to share. And uh, uh, when it comes to the vaccines, you know, Taiwan is it, it's it's just a buyer, and they're going to be competing with other other countries. Uh, then they're going to have to negotiate agreements to allow. Uh, Taiwan travelers to enter other countries. A very slow progress. There was hope that there'd be some travel bubble agreements involving Taiwan and other countries. We haven't really seen that. It could be a political reason. It could be uh, you know, fear of angering China, and that's why countries don't want to enter into these agreements with Taiwan. So that that's kind of a COVID-19 risk as well. So on the one hand, we're saying, oh, Taiwan, such wonderful things. On the other hand, uh, you see Singapore made a unilateral decision to allow Taiwan travelers in, but they didn't sign any kind of bilateral agreement. Japan as well. Japan's been adjusting its various restrictions on inbound travelers from different countries. Taiwan is sometimes included in the group groups of countries that uh, are subject to less stringent quarantine requirements, uh, but we don't see the, the government of Japan announcing a bilateral agreement with Taiwan. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, one of the interesting things, actually. Just because of COVID-19, there's been more attention on Taiwan than ever. Uh, as you mentioned, just for example, the WHO push. And so this time, Taiwan did have more stronger backing, I think, than ever before. Again, because of this perception that Taiwan had the secret sauce to fighting off COVID-19, uh, and also that more countries signed on to backing Taiwan before. But at the end of the day, Taiwan still voluntarily withdrew its bid for WHO participation as an observer, uh, probably because there was just not enough backing. And so if this is the situation with so much international exposure on Taiwan, then this will probably always be the situation. And so I think these larger structural conditions regarding Taiwan's marginality and so forth have not changed. And so while temporarily uh, something such as mask diplomacy, sending masks and medical supplies and, and supply chains to produce masks and PPE and, and so forth to other countries helps, and it, it does it does allow for a production of soft power, um, this may not be lasting. At the end of the day, China is so much larger, and actually it will always be able to project more soft power in that sense, just because by sheer virtue of size. So obviously that's the serious business of 2020. But Brian, the goofy, the inane, the funny business of 2020, what, what call your eye in, in inanity here in Taiwan, if you could find any? In yeah, the, I think in the barrage, the mirage of COVID. <laughs> yeah, so mine is also a COVID nineteen related story. It was that Taiwanese airlines began taking flights to nowhere. Uh, major airlines such as China Airlines or Eva Air began taking flights uh, and just allowing people to get on the airplane and just they would just go out and fly and just then turn around and just come back. And people would be able to eat airplane food and they could experience the experience of traveling without actually having to go anywhere. And so that just is just experience of being on an airplane. And so it's it's one of those things that I think people puzzle over. Why are people doing this? Like just you can't get anywhere. People, People want to travel when nobody can travel, and so you take an airplane, which is usually the least enjoyable part of travel. And for some reason, COVID-19 now makes us enjoy this. Um, and also just this places a lot of carbon emissions into the air just for this purpose uh, of traveling nowhere. And so I, I, I really wonder about this. Of course, many people thronged to Sungshan Airport when this started, Ross. Uh we I you know a bit of pandemic that doesn't seem wise either <laughs> if we're supposed to be social distancing even with the safer conditions in in Taiwan uh, Brian made a really good point when he mentions the the carbon emissions that these trips to nowhere uh, emit and uh, we're supposed to be uh, uh, fairly environmentally conscious here in Taiwan the DPP is certainly a a party that does put a great emphasis on environmental uh, protection issues. So I would have preferred that the government had said, uh, we'll let other countries engage in this kind of silliness, but it's it's not for us. Uh, but uh, you know, unfortunately, they proceeded. I, I do uh, agree with Brian. I think it's it's extremely wasteful for a number of reasons. And Ross, what was your goofy story, inane story, or just completely... Do forget about it story. Uh, it, it was in the news the last few days. The, it is an airline story uh, with the hope for resumption of somewhat normal travel, uh, more frequent travel. Uh, airlines are, are now selling, uh, the Taiwan Airlines are, are now selling uh, these very elaborate full body suits, uh, mask, uh, you know, it's like a clean suit if you're working a semiconductor factory, gloves. Uh, big plastic uh, shield, so I guess you could still watch the movie while you're on the airplane. Uh, it doesn't look very comfortable. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't want to wear it. I think I'd rather take take the risk that you know, of using my own wearing my own clothes on the plane. I, I really hope that they don't make it a requirement to wear these things uh, on the aircraft, especially if we're going to be getting vaccinated in, in, in the next six months or so uh but uh, you know these look like spacesuits or you know radioactive you know you're, you're exposed to radioactive uh waste or something you know 
they're not very fashionable either. <laughs> so uh, even though the the articles that I saw had pretty models wearing these these outfits, uh, you know, they they are quite ugly as well. So Brian, will you be wearing a body condom to get on an airplane? Probably not, but I think uh, you know you always see these like uh, speculative art projects these days of like what the post-COVID future will be like, and it's always these kind of you know uh, crazy suits, and they try to make it fashionable and cool and whatever. And so I think what the uh, the airlines should do is they should op- start offering branded things like mascots. You know that's quite popular in air- airlines. So you know Hello Kitty, uh, you know PPE for your flight on the Hello Kitty airplane to Japan. I think that's what they should turn towards offering next. Brian, I'm shocked that that someone like you would want to do some more advertising for. For the man, for those yes, big yes. evil corporations, you want to sit on a plane for sixteen hours to to JFK well, with a McDonald's yes, ad yes. on your PPE. That, 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 after the Freud of, of it, um, just uh, the ridiculousness of it. I mean, maybe that's the future. I mean, yeah. Well, they could just stick the name. You could when you buy the PPE suit. You could get it with your name on the back, like like a sport, like, like sports a sports jersey. Oh, yeah. that's true. Yeah, you can pick your own number. So, yeah, so, yeah. so, Gavin, Gavin, as far as I know, you're a guy who, uh, despite being a radio personality, you generally like your privacy. You, you want everyone on the airplane to say, "Hey, it's Phipps. There's Phipps. He's going to the bathroom. Hey, it's Phipps going to the bathroom again. <laughs> it might hey, it's quite... Phipps talking to the flight attendants in the galley. Is that what you want? <laughs> it might be quite amusing. You could, if they had. D- d- Order, order design, design to order PPE suits. Yeah, I'll put Brian's name on my suit that has that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good. Oh, actually, oh, well, sir, you don't action. look like a Bridehoy. <laughs> I think I'll get Ross Feingold to mine and cause a disturbance. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio for our last show of 2020 by Ross Feingold. Happy New Year. And Brian Hugh. Happy holidays. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And we'll see you again in the new year, but there won't be a show next week as it's January the 1st and we won't be here. But in the meantime, don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app or system or whatever where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.